Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, College Park. Father in heaven, we come today uh, to you in the name of our Lord Jesus, who is the captain of our soul, the founder and finisher of our faith. And he is the one who paid the debt of our sins so that we could even come to you, so that we can look at this text and um, see ourselves and really wrestle with uh, the implications of the forgiveness that he purchased for us. Um, Lord, I suspect today that there will be some people who, at the end of this message, will have uh, a tension, uh, conflict within their heart over um, complicating factors, things that are hard to understand. And I just pray that for um, the next few moments we could just listen and hear the beauty of what you want forgiveness to be, regardless of our circumstance, our background, our experience, the qualifications, all of the things that we could just for a moment hear um, what it is that you did for us and what you want to then do through us as we mediate your grace to people when they hurt us. So I pray that you would meet today with your people and that you'd empower your word. Help me, God, to not confuse anyone, um, but help me, Lord, to lay this passage out, I think, like you wanted it to be laid out. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you travel to a uh, country dominated by oppression for a number of years, it's not very hard to find images of tragedy and pain. Last week when I was in Kiev, there is a large grassy knoll in the center of the city with a bowl-shaped field. A monument in that field looks as if there are people who are climbing out of and on top of each other from the dirt. It's a memorial to 34,000 Jews who were rounded up, shot, and buried in mass graves on that site. The soldiers, after emptying their weapons and running out of bullets, wounded, shot people, and because they didn't want to expend any more of their ammunition, they simply buried them, some dead and some alive. The people in Kiev would say that for three days the ground moved in this field. It's a stunning monument to the cruelty 
that exists in our world. You see, the reality is, friends, our world groans under the weight of brokenness and under the weight of sin. Mass graves would only be one example. Social injustice, um, rampant abuse, fractured relationships, and deep personal wounds are a part of our human condition. We live in a very fallen world. And because of that, the subject of forgiveness is so important. In fact, there are few things that I think would be more practical to talk about than how to practice forgiveness because knowing what God says about forgiveness is simply a matter of spiritual survival in a world so racked with conflict and pain. Additionally, we probably all know, or maybe you are one of these kind of persons who creates a self-made prison of bitterness or unforgiveness or resentment. So forgiveness is really important. Biblical forgiveness, critical. And what you need to understand is there's more at stake here than just your emotional health. One of the concerns I have on a lot of material that's written on forgiveness is the starting point is often how to deal with your own hurt or your own personal emotional health. That's the fruit. The root is far more significant. You see, forgiveness as Jesus defines it would make his followers very different from the world and the culture. That, in fact, is his aim So the aim in forgiveness is not just to deal with my own emotions. The aim is, in effect, to show a watching world something beautiful that comes from a heart that would be impossible to produce this unless God did something powerful within it. You see, consistently embracing the depth and breadth of forgiveness, as Jesus teaches here, would make you so unique and so radical that a watching world would wonder, what in the world motivates you people? For someone to forgive like Jesus suggests... The person would have to be so overwhelmed by something beyond just the personal benefits of granting forgiveness. You see, I don't think I can motivate you with the benefits of forgiving, but I do think I can show you the power of what it means to be forgiven by God and then for you to show that same kind of gracious forgiveness to others. In other words, only the forgiven can really forgive. And what Jesus is going to show us here is this amazing forgiveness that God has first offered to us and then we are called to offer to others. If earthly forgiveness is not part of a person's life, then what Jesus suggests here is that their understanding of divine forgiveness is lacking or in doubt. In other words, only the forgiven can truly forgive, and the reverse is also true. Those who refuse to forgive must wonder if they really know what it means to be truly forgiven. So forgiveness is that important and that radical. And so today we're going to look at the subject of forgiveness. I I must warn you, I'm I'm simply going to deal with the passage as it is in front of us here today, and there may be lots of questions that you have or circumstances that relate to your experience or your past, and I'm not going to be able to answer all of those. And in fact, if you hear me correctly, you're going to walk out this morning with a little bit of tension. 
Because Jesus just kind of lays some things out there, and I think he wants to swing the pendulum of our lives one particular direction. And here's why. Because I think that's only when we swing the pendulum that we really can understand the implications of certain situations in our lives. So we're going to look at this subject, and I hope that when you leave today you'll have better questions and maybe new categories. You may not have all the answers. So our passage begins with an honest question from Peter. He has just heard Jesus' teaching about how to respond to people when they do us wrong. In verses 15 through 20, this whole section on um, eventually church discipline. And this section that we're in is all about what Jesus would do if he were me. He's trying to help his disciples know how to live out his teaching in the real world. And this theme of practical living, in particular in regards to relationship, creates a question in Peter's mind. And he's not sure how far he should take what Jesus is saying here. And therefore, he sets up a hypothetical question for Jesus. And he asks it in such a way, it almost sounds as like the question that we kind of laugh about as pastors when someone comes to us and says, hey, I have this friend, and they have this problem. And, and you're thinking, yeah, right, you have the problem. So uh, he asks it kind of in a hypothetical way like that. He says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? So we've got no reason to doubt Peter's genuineness. And frankly, he should be commended for his suggestion to forgive someone seven times, because that goes way beyond the norm. In order to understand really what Peter's saying here, you've you got to understand two things. The first is it is assumed in the passage that the, Peter, that the person that Peter is talking about has acknowledged that they've done something wrong and that they have repented. Even though it's not mentioned here, repentance is linked with forgiveness. If you've got your Bible, look at Luke 17 in verse 3. It's a very important um, passage that gives us this parallel to what Jesus is saying and what Peter is asking in uh, Matthew 18. Luke 17 is a very important text, and in many respects it kind of runs countercultural to a lot of what we hear about forgiveness. That being that we often hear that forgiveness is unconditional. And I would just tell you that's just patently not true. Love is unconditional. Kindness is unconditional. Blessing and praying for people is unconditional. But forgiveness is conditional. Let me show you this. Luke 17. He says, this is verse 3, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So what's important for you to understand is that the Bible tells us that forgiveness is conditional. It's conditional, first, on the death of Christ. God wouldn't forgive us unless Christ had died. Secondly, it's conditional on the confession of our sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. It's also conditional on repentance. So Peter, listen, is not just talking about somebody who hurts you. Someone who annoys you. Somebody who bugs you. Someone who does something that you just don't like that you could maybe cover in love. No, no. He's talking about somebody who hurts you, repents, and then hurts you again. And then does that seven times. So this sevenfold forgiveness, this isn't just a little minor thing. This is somebody who hurts you 
repents and then hurts you again and does that seven times. And in fact, Luke 17 even says seven times in a day. So this idea is elevating the challenge of how much it would take to forgive that kind of person. The kind of love. How, how How many times in a day must I forgive this person? Seven times? That's huge in its scope. So Peter is elevating here the emotional stakes of what is on the line. To understand the power of the question, you have to know that forgiveness was and is always conditional. Now secondly, the other element that increases the power of what Peter says is the fact that he suggests seven times. Because in Jesus' day and time, according to the scribes, a person was obligated to forgive another person up to three times, but after that you didn't have to forgive anymore. So when Peter suggests seven times, he doubled it and added one for good measure. And so therefore, um, if you were standing around, you would be really impressed of, with Peter's generosity. This, this, is, this is a big offer. Seven times? That, that's, you would have said, wow, is that generous? Wow, is that gracious? That's twice as much as what most people forgive. So just get this in your mind. Peter says, how often should I forgive my brother? Twice as much as everybody else forgives them? It's, it's an enormously important question. And it's filled with generosity. And then Jesus says something that rocks their world. And if you understand what he's saying here, it will rock yours. It will create tension and difficulty and problems. Jesus' generosity in forgiveness is almost unthinkable. And in fact, it is revolutionary. Jesus said to him, I say to you, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. He eclipsed Peter's generosity with a mind-blowing standard of what forgiveness in the kingdom should look like. That little phrase, 70 times 7, was first made famous by a guy named Lamech in the Old Testament. He was the father of Noah and a descendant of Cain. And in Genesis 4.24, we find that Lamech was bragging about what he would do to somebody if they did him wrong. And he says in Genesis 4.24, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventyfold. Seventy times what Cain would do, I would do. And his statement is as arrogant as it was outrageous. Because what Lamech is bragging about here is that his revenge would be without limit. His revenge would be unending. He's not talking about 70 times. Literally, he's saying, I will take my pound of flesh and I won't stop. And that is exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 18, but not about revenge, but about forgiveness. That his forgiveness here, as he suggests it, is not about a specific number, but it's about the unending nature of it. So his point, Jesus' point here, is not to up the ante on the number of times that a person should practice forgiveness from 3 to 7 to 490, like you're a baseball umpire with a count little meter in your hand, and 1, 2, 3, 4, and 10 years into your marriage, you're like, bing, 490 times, baby, that's it, no more forgiveness. That's not what he's talking about. Although I think you knew that. The problem is, is that many people live like that. His point is that the disciples should not be Lamech-like in their lust for revenge, but that they should be Lamech-like in their passion for forgiveness. In other words, and here's the shocking reality, followers of Jesus are to practice unending forgiveness. No counting. No limits. 
And while our culture is hell-bent on revenge, the followers of Jesus are radically different. The world brags about revenge, and the followers of Jesus practice unending forgiveness. Unending forgiveness. Now, if you if you read this passage and you get it, what is going to happen in your heart is this statement. Wait a minute. How is that even possible? If you hear Jesus correctly, his words should generate some tension, some questions, some, well, what about this and what about that and what about this scenario? And frankly, it should do that. And if his teaching doesn't do that, then you probably haven't pushed the envelope far enough on what he's really saying. In fact, Jesus wants that kind of response, even anticipates it. He wants this kind of forgiveness to be shocking, even troublesome. So before you start going down those roads in your mind of, well, what about this and what about that? And I got this thing on my past and this person, how did they know if they repented or not and all this stuff? But just put all of that aside for a moment. And without all those qualifications, I just want you to embrace the tension here that Jesus wants us to feel. Just for a moment, I want you to just put away the things from the past, the justifications, the what ifs as to what this kind of forgiveness really looks like and how impractical or impossible it is and what i want you to do imagine scales with me on the one side you got justice and on the other side you got mercy and i think what jesus wants us to do is he wants us to tip the scales way on the mercy side so much so and here's why i think he wants to do that because it's only when you tip the scales way on the mercy side that you're really able to see clearly what biblical justice even looks like Be careful that you don't start on the justice side. It's as though Jesus wants us to tip way to the mercy side. There is a just side, don't get me wrong. But it seems as though Jesus wants us to tip way to the mercy side so that you can see clearly what real biblical justice is. In other words, when offenses come our way, Jesus wants us to err not on the side of personal justice and revenge, but on mercy and forgiveness. And this hits something that we all know, that our natural tendency is not towards mercy. It's towards, I'm going to hit back. So the question is, what's your bent? Something happens to you? Someone does you wrong? Where is your bent? And my guess is most of us, if not all of us, our bent is towards retaliation, not towards forgiveness. So so Jesus takes this teaching and he now drives it home with a parable. He does this because first he wants to illustrate what he's teaching, but secondly he wants to draw us into this parable. He wants you to get into the story and, and suddenly realize, you know what, I'm in this story. This story isn't a story about a servant and a king. This is a story about me. I'm in this parable. He's talking about me. And he wants you to see yourself through the lens of this parable, and what happens if you act like this unforgiving servant, he wants you to feel what will happen to you and feel the weight of the inconsistency so that then you would be different. Now, before we get into the parable, I, I need to tell you that there's an important backstory. And the important backstory is that while the disciples didn't fully understand all the ramifications of forgiveness, you as a New Testament person should. Meaning, they didn't understand the full extent of the cross. 
But if you've studied your Bible, you've read the, the New Testament, you know that the scope and depth of our forgiveness through Christ is immense. He has forgiven our sins, past, present, and future. So when we go into this parable, you have to see that there's a looming shadow of the cross over top of this entire story. And you have to keep in mind the reality of the cross that's undergirding this amazing parable. And for you to realize that the disciples didn't fully comprehend the beauty of this, but we do, at least I hope you do. And the fact that our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future, that changes everything and should affect even how you see this parable. This last week, I had a conversation with a couple Muslim students about the differences between Islam and Christianity. And they had seen a uh, video of our services and had commented that one of the differences between their worship services and ours was the fact that we sing said, you'd never sing like this in a mosque. And I said to them, you know why we sing, don't you? And they said, no. I said, ah, see, here's one of the major differences between Islam and Christianity. With Islam, you're trying to earn God's favor. So you constantly live in fear of God, hoping that he'll accept your sacrifice, your actions as good, and that the scales of your good deeds and your bad deeds will be weighed out. And so you live in constant fear of your God. But Christianity is so radically different that God through Christ has forgiven us of all of our sins and so the scales of justice have been fully tipped and God looks at us now full of mercy and love and we can't help but sing because our sins are completely forgiven. And that's the joy between the difference between Islam and Christianity. It's the difference between fear and joy, between works and grace, between absolute bondage and ultimate freedom. That's the difference. And that's what you have to see in this parable. That there is a grace-filled shadow that overcasts, overshadows this particular parable. So look for that looming shadow. Verse 23 begins with the statement that the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. This king um, had apparently some officials who entrusted... He entrusted a lot of money to. So this is not just a normal servant. This is uh, like a vice regent or a governor. And there was one servant who owed a substantial debt. The text tells us it was 10,000 talents. Now that number doesn't really mean anything to you. So let me explain to you the value. A typical worker in the ancient Near East was paid one denarius a day. And a talent was worth 6,000 denarii. Therefore, this man would have had to work approximately 60 million days to pay this debt. Or 190,000 years to earn this amount of money. That helps, doesn't it? And we're talking about an unbelievable amount. The, The point is not the number of days. The point is an outrageously large number. It's sort of like how we use the word million or thousand. When we say, I'm not going to forgive it in a million years. You don't say, hey buddy, you're not going to live a million years. Duh. You don't say that. You know what he's saying. He's expressing it emotionally. Or you might say, they've done that to me a thousand times. And you're like, really a thousand? I mean, it's like 900 maybe, but a thousand just seems like a lot. You don't say that because you, you, the literalness of what the person is saying is discounted by the emotions. It's an emotional statement that's meant to communicate how big you are hurt or how, how upset you are. And that's what's happening here. This debt is emotional. There's no way this man could pay it. So notice what happens. 
The king, and again, keep the shadow of the cross in mind, the king therefore ordered that he and his family be sold into slavery. Now, the point here was not that he could sell them into slavery and then he could get his money back because they'd never be able to pay the debt. The, the, The point here is that everything the man had, including his family, was on the line. He had an insurmountable debt, and now his debt cost him everything. He wasn't just broke. He wasn't just bankrupt. He and his family were ruined. Sound familiar? In the New Testament, that's how the Bible describes our bondage to sin. Not just broke, not just bankrupt, ruined. Without hope, this man had so much debt, so great was the impossibility of ever paying it back, this debt cost him everything, including his freedom. He was ruined and in bondage. He has an unbelievable debt. Then, The man, then, has no options but to throw himself at the mercy of the king. And according to verse 26, the servant then fell on his knees, and he asked the king to be patient with him, telling him, now this is a very interesting statement, that he would pay him everything he owed. Remember the amount? 193,000 years it would take to repay this amount. 60 million days. The king and the servant both know it was a ridiculous promise. There's no way that he could pay this debt. It's absolutely impossible. But his only chance was to throw himself at the mercy of the king. And amazingly, the king is moved by his man, this, this man's plead. This is his plea, his pleading. And even more remarkable is the fact that he rejects the man's offer of repayment and then he does something else. Actually, he does two things. Look at verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant first released him and secondly forgave him the debt. He released him of the consequences and grants him pardon for future payment. He now says there's no longer any consequences and there's no future jeopardy. He therefore forgives the debt completely. So just just stop here and think of what's going on. In one moment, this man went from being completely ruined and completely hopeless to entirely debt-free. He went from being in total bondage, a life completely ruined, to a life now completely free. He went from having an insurmountable debt that ruined his life, now to a life-changing pardon that was completely undeserved. This was a life-changing moment. He was released and he was forgiven. Further, think of what this tells us about the king and what the king did. Releasing the man and his family from jail and then saying, okay, I'm going to release you so you can then pay the debt, even a part of the debt, would have been just and very generous. The man owes the king. So his repayment would have been fair and it would have been incredibly generous to not put them in prison. But the king doesn't do that. He goes even further. He releases the slave and then completely forgives him of the debt in the future. And this means yet another thing that's very important. The the, the servant's debt to the king was an account receivable. Meaning that money was owed the king. It was an asset. 
So when the king wipes away the indebtedness of this servant, it doesn't just evaporate. Somebody paid it. And the person who paid it by virtue of forgiving it was the king. He took an asset that was rightfully his and said, I no longer have any hold on this asset. So the king, by forgiving this man, pays the debt himself by not requiring its payment. This is generosity that is unbelievable. The generosity of this king of, is of infinite worth since he has forgiven something that is enormous and also something that is rightfully his. This moment of forgiveness is meant to have you look at this story and go, wow. Again, remember the shadow? You know where I'm going with this. All human beings have an insurmountable sin debt that God is just in collecting through punishment. God would have every right to take every sinful human being and give them complete and eternal punishment for their sins. And the beauty of the gospel is the fact that God releases us of the consequences of our sin and then he pays the debt of our sin through the death of his son. So the gospel, the good news... Forgiveness that God offers to us is free to us, but not free to God. It's incredibly costly. And then he releases us from all future consequences. This is why Paul in Ephesians 2.7 says this about our forgiveness. It is to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Just hear that verse again. Ephesians 2.7 to show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us. Immeasurable riches. This is divine generosity that's meant to take your breath away. But this is just the setup. The text tells us that this same servant went out and found a fellow servant who owed him some money. The man who had been forgiven, had all of his debts paid. But this man, the new servant that's brought into the story, apparently owed the formerly forgiven servant a hundred denarii, which was about four months of wages. And he, the text says that he grabbed him by the neck and he demanded that he be paid immediately. He does this even though he has just been forgiven 579 times the amount that he's now trying to squeeze out of this fellow servant. And in an ironic twist, the the man who's being assaulted pleads with the forgiven servant using the identical words that the forgiven servant has just said to the king. He says, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he could have repaid this forgiven servant. He could have made good on his debt. But the king's servant was not moved. And in a stunning statement, the parable says, He refused. And then he put the man in prison. The kind of prison he had just been in. The kind of prison that he had just been set free from. The kind of prison that he would, had been in bondage to. And despite having himself and his family released from prison, he treats this man with contempt and ungrateful cruelty. The parable goes on, and it tells us that there were other servants who saw that this had happened. They observed this behavior. They saw the actions of the previously forgiven man. 
And verse 31 says they were greatly distressed. The word means they were grieved. They, they looked at his actions and they said, this is so wrong, as you would as well, to look at this and just go, how in the world could a man who's been forgiven 193,000 years of, of, of work grab a man by the neck and say, pay me what you owe me these four months' wages? That is just so wrong. And that's what's meant to happen inside of your heart. The tragic irony is obvious. Here was a generous king who could have been incredibly just in requiring the debt to be paid, releases this servant of an insurmountable debt, and then that servant, for unknown reasons, grabs another servant and says, you pay me what you owe me now. And when that servant asks for mercy, the formerly forgiven servant refuses, creating a great injustice. Well, the king heard of this injustice. Verse 32, he brought the wicked servant in. And he says this to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? The answer is assumed. Of course he should. This would be the right response because of the scope of mercy that came his way. And then Jesus ends the parable with this statement, verse 34, And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. In other words, he would now be in prison forever. He would never be able to repay his debt. God would treat him in the way that he deserved. Mercy was gone. Now the parable is finished, but Jesus is not. To make absolutely sure that no one would miss his point, Jesus makes one last statement that should make every person in this room who loves the grace of God and has experienced the grace of God, it should make you shudder. And this is what Jesus says. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What is Jesus saying here? Listen, it's, it's actually very simple. To put it negatively, he, he's saying this, if you fail to forgive others, then you really don't understand what forgiveness is. To put it positively, he's saying those who really understand the beauty, the scope, and the depth, and the power of God's forgiveness through Christ, they are forgiving people. The orientation of their heart is that they would be the kind of people who see the enormity of their debt. And when they hear this parable and they see a man with 60 million days of work and 193,000 years of labor to pay his debt, they look at that parable and say, God, that was me. And when they see the man saying, I will repay you all, and they hear the king say, I release you and I forgive your debt, they hear the parable and they say, that was me. I was that servant. I had that debt. I had that forgiveness. I had that release. I had this grace. Those who really understand the beauty, the scope, the power of God's forgiveness through Christ, they are forgiving people. The shadow of the cross, that cross is really important because the kind of forgiveness that Jesus is talking about here is truly miraculous. It is not normal. It's normal to seek revenge. It's normal to say, I'm going to get them back. It's normal to say, I will forgive once but not twice. It is not normal to have this gracious orientation 
And the reason that that's important is because this kind of forgiveness comes from another world. It comes from another realm. It comes by the conquering of your heart. So you see your sin, receive complete forgiveness from Christ. This is the kind of forgiveness that you know cannot come from you. It is this forgiveness that in light of what you've received, you're able to forgive others. This forgiveness doesn't come just because you think, I've got to forgive people more, I've got to be loving more. No, a true forgiving spirit comes as you bask in the beauty of what Christ has done for you, and it's out of the understanding of that forgiveness and the meditation on that forgiveness that you see people through a new lens. Our natural orientation is not to be this way. In fact, it's tragically true that human beings often do not learn from how we are treated or how we are mistreated. So this has to be a conquering of your heart over and over and over. One of our strategic partners around the world is a man named Lied, and he works in the country of Liberia. And a couple weeks ago, I had lunch with Lied. We were talking about the dynamics of his country and how civil war broke out there. And he told me a remarkable story about how civil war happened. It happened because of a conflict between freed American slaves and the indigenous people of Liberia. And the unfair treatment created the civil war. But do you know how that unfair treatment happened? Here's what happened. Released American slaves were brought over to the country of Liberia, and when they landed on the shores of Liberia, they established plantations and put the indigenous people in their service as slaves. Even though they knew the bondage and oppression of slavery, when given the chance, they did it to the people in another country. And you know this is true. Oppressed people, when they're given a power, oppress others. Hurt people... Hurt people. Abuse people. Abuse others. The wounded wound. This is the cycle of our culture. And it takes a miracle of God's grace to break that cycle and say, No more. I will forgive as I have been forgiven. It takes a, a, an invasion of God's heart. It, it, so Jesus is calling his followers to do something radical, to forgive your brother from your heart. He, he asks us, commands us, to think about the gracious and looming shadow of the cross over our lives. He calls us, friends, to be cross people. To never lose the beauty, the awe, and the trauma of what it means to have been released from our prison of our self-made sins and to have been forgiven all of our debt and that we see life and hurt and pain through that lens. It is that we would be so amazed by the beauty and the scale of our own forgiveness that we see people and pain and offenses differently. So here's my question. Do you see things that way? Or, or, or do you just have this mentality of, don't you dare mess with me? Don't you dare hurt me? Don't you dare say that about me? Or is it possible that we could tip the scales to mercy and for you to know that if you got what you deserved, oh, and that everything you have is a gift from God, and if people really knew how, who you really are, they'd treat you far worse than what they even do now. And everything is a mercy gift. You see, that that may be a problem for some of you here today because you can't process your past. And you can't even process pain in the present because you've, you've never experienced this life-transforming forgiveness that comes through Christ. So all you've got is revenge and bitterness. All you've got is self-protection. It creates this self-made prison. And the reason is, is because you're trying to do life on your own. 
And it may be that God could use the very pain of your past that has wrapped you in bitterness as the very thing now that brings you to Christ for you to be able to see that ultimate freedom comes when Christ declares over you, you are fully forgiven, released. And when that happens, then you can process life differently. And for those of you who have tasted of God's graciousness, for those of you who know what it's like to be set free from the prison of your sin, who know what it's like to have God declare over you, you are forgiven of past, present, and future sins. The calling here is not for you to try harder. Be more moral. Be better. That will never work. Your calling is to meditate on, think about, sing about, and talk about the immense mercy of God given to you through Christ so you will see the offenses of others through a cross lens. That you will see how God wants you to see others through this lens of the enormous debt that you've been forgiven of. That you would look in this parable and say, I am that man. And so that God helping you, you would never respond like he responded. In other words, the call is to see the offenses, the hurts, the injustices in your life under the looming and life-giving shadow of the cross. My question is, do you see things that way? Because you're in the parable. My prayer is you're in the first part but that you're not in the second. That you could be a man or a woman who understands the beauty of God's grace and you are overwhelmed with how much you have been forgiven and because of that you are a radically different person in how you deal with offenses. Because you have been transfixed and transformed by the beautiful grace of a forgiving God. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to take this particular passage in the midst of all the hurt that we experience in the world. We live in a broken world. And if we're not careful, we will be characterized by defending ourselves, being bitter, being angry, being resentful, taking our revenge. And not only will we, we, will we be miserable, but we will not demonstrate the beauty of this forgiveness that you've given to us in Christ. So would you help, help the people who are in worship too, help the people who are in this very auditorium, help the people who are going to listen to this message on a podcast that they would know that they are the man forgiven 193,000 years of debt, an impossible amount. And therefore, that should change what they see when people hurt them. And while Chuck just continues to play in this kind of closing moment of our service today, could I just ask you to, to search your own heart and maybe you would say to God, God, help me to be this man. But not to grab someone by the neck and demand repayment, but instead to be gracious and loving and kind and free because of the gospel. You may be here today and you've never given your heart and life to Christ. You have so much pain in the past and today God by His Spirit is drawing you to Himself to say, look, it's time. It's time for me to write over your heart forgiven so that you can be right with me and right with other people. 
does not come from you. This comes only by the Word and the Spirit of God. When we're done, there'll be some folks up here in the front love to be able to pray with you. Maybe you need to pray with them in regards to the state of your soul. Maybe you need someone to pray with you that you would just begin to really see the cross so you could see others as God wants you to see them. So Father, I pray now that you would apply your word to our hearts as only you can. Thank you for the categories that this busts and the questions that this creates more so thank you for the gleaming jewel of the grace of forgiveness in Christ we love you Lord and we ask this in Jesus name Amen